Good morning. <sighs> you guys. Thank you. I feel loved. Uh, turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. That's how old I am. Romans chapter 10. We're going to read, picking up in verses uh, 16 through 21. Can you stand one more time under the authority of God's word? Um, this is a interesting text. It flows out of what we've just talked about the past two weeks. Um, and so at some point, it kind of feels like we're jumping into a train of thought. We are. Um, this serves kind of as like the footnotes to Paul's argument, but there's a lot of meat for us to chew on this morning, and I, I pray by God's grace that we would uh, leave here today more grateful for his gospel and what is revealed here in these verses that our hearts might sing a little louder uh, because of this. So starting in verse 16, this is what Paul says. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Well, indeed they have, for their voice has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and with a foolish nation I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, don't you love when the Bible says that another part of the Bible is so bold as to say? Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown, my, shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, be with us as we seek to understand your words. Help us to have ears to hear, and hearts to understand what your spirit is saying to your church. And help us not be so proud that we think we are beyond your gospel. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but your truth. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I was uh, uh, reflecting over... Um, a trip that Kristen and I took a couple of years ago with uh, a couple of students, some college students. Uh, back when I was really young, uh, I took a trip down to Haiti uh, with a bunch of college students. And our church at that time was partnering with a village. Uh, we had sent some money, built a, sh built a shelter in the middle of this forgotten wasteland. It was, a, it was a group of people who weren't even on the map. The government didn't know they existed. They didn't have any, any uh, education. They didn't have any identification. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any resources. They had this lake, but there was no fish in the lake. It was just a terrible, desolate place. And so our church was working uh, with certain uh, organizations down in Haiti to try and provide a standard of living for these people that would help them uh, find ways to, um, <clears throat> first of all, survive, <laughs> and then to thrive. And so our, our team, we, um, we went down there because we had started a school and a church. We went down there to like, encourage and to spend time with the people of the school and the church, but we're Americans, which means we have to do something to feel like it was worth the trip. Right? You ever been on a mission trip? And you're like, yeah, but what are we going to do? All right, you'll figure that out later. Uh, it's not enough for us just to go. We got to go and, like, do. Right? And so uh, our do was to build bathhouses, bathrooms for this community. This is uh, in the middle of a wilderness a bunch of thatch huts, no bathrooms for, for anyone. And so um, privacy was a real big deal. So 
knowing that it was a building trip, I decided that I was going to stack my team full of ringers. And so I went and found my friend John. John owned a, um, a construction company in the western suburbs of Chicago. And I said, John, if anyone's going to help me be able to build some, you know, bathrooms out in Haiti, it's you. And so come on. He's like, great, let's go do it. And so we were just pumped up. We're like, we're Americans. We know how to build. Like, this is going to be great. We got to Haiti. They showed us the spot where they wanted the bathrooms. They had pre-dug the hole, and they brought us to it. We looked over, and I kid you not, it was an eight-foot diameter hole about 30 to 35 feet down. Yes, thank you. That was my reaction. I was like, let's just back up a little bit. You want us to do what? And I looked at John, and I looked at the two-by-fours that they had gotten, some of the plywood, some of the tin for a roof, and I was like, well, dude, I mean, it's an eight-by-eight eight structure. How hard could that be to get two bathrooms out of this? Like, we'll be fine, but how are we going to cross this chasm and not lose one of our students in the process? And so I, I've quickly realized we were a little out of our depths in Haiti. Sure, you can applaud that. Uh, there was no electricity, and we were used to power tools. There was just um, a bucket of nails, a couple of hammers, a couple of saws, hand saws, and I had um, like, like 15 college-aged guys who thanked the Lord they had some traps because they did this all day long. And so there was this guy on the ground who, thankfully, he actually had a plane. He actually knew what was going on. I didn't know his name. I didn't speak his language. He just spoke Creole. He was a local Haitian. But this guy had built these bathrooms before. And we thought, okay, well, this will be fine. Great. Bob the Builder over here has got the plan. And so Bob the Builder would, would look at us. He would go, he would mark a line on a two-by-four. He would grunt. He'd go, ugh. <laughs> that was the best we had. And he, he, someone would go cut the piece of wood where he marked. He would just do this all day long. And all of a sudden, we saw this thing start to take, take shape. Uh, Bob the Builder had uh, actually, like, sistered in these two-by-fours into the foundation. We created this, like, this, this plate that we could build a foundation upon. This thing was taking shape. I was like, wow, Bob the Builder actually knows what's going on. Until it came for us to build vertically. All of a sudden, all of our faith in Bob the Builder was lost because Bob wanted to put two-by-four structures in places where there really shouldn't be two-by-four structures. He would look at us and he'd, he'd say, uh, uh, here, he learned that one, here, here. <laughs> we're like, that's where the door goes, bro. You shouldn't put it there. Like, Bob, why don't you step aside let us build this part? And he was like, no, no, here. He took the hammer. I remember this so clearly. He took the hammer out of one of our guy's hands and he nailed it in himself. Finally, getting so frustrated with us looking at him so weirdly and, 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 uh, and him looking at us so weirdly, we realized that we had no idea what was going on. We had our vision for these bathrooms, and Bob had his vision for his bathrooms, and we were, as Americans in a foreign land, a little bit disoriented on what was actually happening. Bob, becoming incredibly frustrated because the sun was going down, pushed my students out of the way, gathered to himself a whole crop of Haitian men, and together in about 30 minutes, they had that thing done. And we stepped back, and I remember looking at my friend John going, John, it's not two bathrooms, it's four. Who knew? <laughs> and John looked at it, and he goes, yeah, and look at this. That post that he put there that we were like, what is that for? That's to put the lock on the door so it has something to hit against. Brilliant. Oh, and look, it didn't go all the way up where we thought it should go. He left room for ventilation. That's smart. And John and I, 
you know, our, our you know, great American builders that we are, looked at each other, and we just went like this. We went, huh. Huh. It was actually quite ingenious. This, this story, I tell you all that because um, uh, that situation, us being these, you know, privileged Americans in this impoverished place, thinking that we know better than the people there to how to build this basic structure. That's kind of like the same thing that's happening here in Romans. The Jewish people were these privileged people of God who thought they had the pathway and the plan and the, um, the, the, the architectural drawings, as it were, to be able to build upon the kingdom of God as they thought it was going to be built. They thought they were going to be building a two-bathroom stall here in the middle of Haiti, and only to find out God was building four. It left them a little disoriented along the way when Jesus came to the picture, uh, said that he was the Father, that he was God. He died on the cross, and uh, then when he resurrected, the Jewish people didn't know what to do with him. They, they, they were, in some sense, disoriented because nothing in the Old Testament had, had really, in their mind, showed them that this was going to be the plan of God. It was a little bit lost on them. And so we've been going as a church, if you're new, we've been just walking through the book of Romans, verse by verse. That's why, how we came to chapter 10, verse 16 today. And chapters 9 and 10 have talked extensively about what does this mean about God's original plan, the expectations that the Jewish people brought into this world. Are they all of a sudden out of date? Are they moot? Does God have any plan for these people? Why is it that God's own people could not build the thing that they were supposed to build? How come they cannot participate in this? And Paul is going to give us here in these six verses a, a, a little bit of a clinic in the gospel. And he's going to do it by showing us three disorienting perspectives on the gospel. Things that uh, you didn't see them coming, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. Have you ever seen one of those optical illusions where you look at the candlestick only to find out that there's a picture of two women looking at each other? You're like, wow, I can't not see that now. That's what Paul is about to do with us in the gospel. These verses, while they are serving to just emphasize and drive home his prior points, they're actually serving to show us great big themes of the gospel. And my hope is that by, by the end of our time today, you won't be able to not see it. First one is this. It's disorienting. It's not what you expect. It's surprising. And Paul tells us that the gospel is humiliation. The gospel is humiliation. Let's look at it. Because humiliation is something we all want to avoid. We all want to go out of our way to avoid humiliation. But Paul makes the point that God had long ago foretold the gospel would bring humiliation to the spiritually proud. Look at what it says in verse 16. He says, but they have not all obeyed. Everybody say obeyed. That's an incredibly important word. We're going to come back to that. The gospel, the gospel, the good news, that the, the word of Christ, the word of faith, that God's plan throughout history has always been uh, focused on his son and his kingdom. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And I ask you this, who is the they? And just as a little aside, um, in Romans chapter 10, the they uh, is Israel. It's always Israel. They is Israel. So Israel has not all obeyed. Not all of them have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did they not understand? 
First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. It's a huge theme in the book of Romans that faith is not by your works, or justification or righteousness is not by your works, but by faith. That the ability to be right with God is not because of anything you've done or what you understand, but because of your faith in God. Paul has been chipping away here at the Jewish understanding of righteousness. The Jewish people thought they were really good at righteousness. They had a zeal for the law. They were the top performers in the religious field. They uh, were the Americans in Haiti who knew how to build a stinking little building. That's who they were. They were to use the, per, the, the, the term Paul uses in verse 4. They established their own righteousness. To say it technically, they were self-righteous. How many people know that self-righteousness is like cyanide to your soul? It can exist in your system and it's odorless, tasteless, uh, even uh, apparently uh, harmless effects until all of a sudden it seizes you and kills your soul. Self-righteousness is the enemy of all that is good in God. Self-righteousness, it is the fruit of spiritual pride. It essentially wants to say, I know how God ought to run the world. He should do it my way. (laughs) And um, raise your hand if you've ever met somebody self-righteous. Well, here's here's a hint. You've met me. I mean, all of us, in some sense, are self-righteous. We think we know what's bet. We think best. We think we know how to get this thing built. And Paul is trying to show us that in God's plan, yes, the uh, Israelites had the word of God, but self-righteousness was their downfall. And Paul shows us here how humiliating this is for Israel, that with all their spiritual advantages, that they would miss God's plan and be hardened against him. And to make that point, that, they, that, that Israel is humiliated in the gospel, he quotes five Old Testament uh, passages, five verses from the Old Testament here in these six verses, that ought to have given the Israelites some indication of what God's plan was going to look like. I want to show you uh, what they were. We'll walk through this very briefly. First, uh, Paul references in verse 16. He says, For Isaiah says... And we know that Isaiah said this because Paul says, Isaiah said it. In case you're curious about how to study the Bible, there you go. Lesson number one, look at what it says. (laughs) Isaiah says, what part of Isaiah? Isaiah 53 is maybe what your Bible says at the bottom. little footnote. Where does Isaiah say this? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a very important prophecy, a very important part of Scripture, especially to the Israelites, because in it, they were told that the Messiah of God would not come in his majestic thunder or as some sort of political ruler or even some military might. He was going to come as this meek and lowly servant. He was going to have nothing that would attract us to him. He was going to be almost undetectable to all of humanity. He was going to come, and he was going to be crushed by God for the iniquity of the world. Call this the suffering servant. Their Messiah to be a suffering servant was a humiliating thought for the Jewish people. And yet, here's what Paul says. He says, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? They haven't obeyed the gospel. And Isaiah, 
predicted that they wouldn't believe the gospel. Because in Isaiah 53, the question is, who, who has believed what we have heard that your anointed one is going to be crushed by you? Who would believe that? It's essentially what Isaiah and Paul are saying. And Paul concludes his one section from verse 14 to verse 17 by saying, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ being linked with Isaiah 53 is so important for Paul because he's saying essentially that this suffering servant, this motif of of someone coming and giving up themselves for the sake of others is actually the word of Christ. And isn't it true? That's exactly what we see Jesus doing. And Paul says, shame on you, Israel. You should have seen it coming. But he asks, well, maybe they didn't see it coming because they didn't know. Like they didn't hear. Maybe they don't obey because they haven't heard it. Like my kids. You guys, I've asked you like a million times, get off the couch and do this thing. Huh? Y'all, my kids aren't even teenagers yet. Lord of mercy. Paul says, maybe they just in one ear out the other. Maybe they didn't hear it. But to that, he says, no, 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 look at Psalm 19. You know the Psalms. You know Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is this great psalm. We call it a psalm of general revelation that God in creation has imprinted his fingerprint upon everything so that we look at the design of the world and we can't help but say there is a God. We want to know him. And in, in Psalm 19, in this specific psalm, it says this, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So Paul's like, no, everybody at least at some level knows that God has a plan and the world is pointing him to that. So maybe, 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 maybe they didn't understand. Like when you go to the doctor and they tell you what's wrong with you and they use these words that are so big and you're like, a what? I have what, can you spell that for me? After the service here, I was talking with a man who's uh, been in a long ordeal with his uh, wife and their doctor, and they're learning all of these Latin phrases, and he's like, honestly, it's taken us six months, and we still don't know half of what we're supposed to know. Paul's like, maybe they just didn't understand what God was saying. They heard it, but they just didn't have the vocabulary for it. And um, Paul says, well, it's actually deeper than that. It's actually a lot deeper than that. And to prove this, he takes them to Deuteronomy chapter 32, where God reminds the people at the end of Deuteronomy when he's about to create a nation out of Israel and give them the land and gives them the law and creates for them the nation of Israel. He reminds them of the time when God gave them uh, his law. When Moses went up the mountain to hear from God and while he was up there, the Israelites thought he's taken a long time. It should be a little quicker. Maybe that God up there has killed him, left him for dead. Maybe he's not God at all. Maybe what we should do is like the other countries around the world have, we, we should make a God we can see. Quick, bring all your earrings, bring all your gold, let's melt it down, let's make an animal. Oh, this looks like a calf. Wow, I'll hail the calf. And Moses, coming down with the words of God, etched in stone by the finger of God, looks upon the disobedience of the people of God, and he breaks the tablets. And God reminds Israel of that moment right there in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He says this, he says, uh, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. If you want to be like the nations, you want to worship 
the foolish nations, the way they worship their foolish gods. There's coming a day where I will take those people who are not a nation, I will make you jealous of them. Of a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Paul is, in essence, reminding the Jewish people that God's blessings would be accompanied with his humiliation, or with Israel's humiliation. And isn't it true, those of you who have been around on the block once or twice know this, oftentimes the way that God gets our attention is by showing us how foolish we've been, right? You ever done something really just foolish, just foolish, and you're like, why did I do that? And in the middle of it, God woke you up, right? In this humiliation, God's intention is to get the attention of Israel. But self-righteous people will not be humiliated. We are prone to imagine that we are stronger, wiser, more autonomous than we actually are. We're prone to imagine that We are a proud nation that looks down the nose of the other little nations. We are a proud business that looks down the nose to a bunch of little businesses. We are proud parents, not in here, who look down our noses, not in here, at the little parents in here, not in here. (laughs) Oh, congratulations, your 18-month-old is saying all their ABCs. Yeah, mine just finished War and Peace. (laughs) Self-righteous parents, you see what I'm saying? You do it. You, all, you absolutely do it. You compare yourself. In our, in our own hearts, what do we do? We always set up little competitions between ourselves. And this is what Israel was accused of doing. They were setting up competitions between themselves and the rest of the world, saying, we're, we're better, we're better, we're better, we're better. And they looked out, and God said, one day, you're not going to be better. They're going to be better. But self-righteous people can't see it. Because in our conquest for being better, we actually get these little trophies, these little milestones. I could maybe break it down for you this way. You could imagine, let's say Hobart High School uh, has the best season in Indiana history. I don't know how our boys are doing right now, but uh, let's just say they're, they're undefeated and they're going to win the rest of their games. It would be good to be a brickie, wouldn't it? Right? Even people from Portage would be like, wow, that's pretty good. Right? You'd be like, wow, they did so good. They had the best quarterback who set the passing yard. Uh, he ran for a million yards. He threw a bunch of touchdowns. He didn't throw a single interception. Would it be wrong of us to put that person in the middle of the room and say, dude, you were awesome this year? No, those are statistics. That's okay. What you wouldn't do, though, is take that quarterback who out here in Northwest Indiana, crushed the competition. You wouldn't take them to Soldier Field and put them in the middle of the field and say, you're awesome, man. Around here, you're the best. Okay, so you might be able to do that in Soldier Field, but you wouldn't take him, you wouldn't take him to Lambeau Field. No, listen, listen. You wouldn't take him to Lambeau Field and put him in the middle of the stadium and say, around here, you're the best, man, would you? And you just fell very nicely into my trap. (laughs) Why do you boo that stupid statement? That quarterbacks in Lambeau Field are better than quarterbacks at Soldier Field. I'm a Bears fan. That is statistics. But you have pride. Misplaced as it is. You have pride. 
And that pride tells you that if anybody's even suggested to be a little bit better than me, that can't be right. I'm better. I got to get better. I'll do better. And we never, our self-righteousness is only calculated by one very specific metric. Can I be better than everybody else? Even if it's 0.1% better. Can I, can I be better? Can I do better? I've never met a self-righteous person who's shot for the moon in their self-righteousness. Because we just measure our own success against the people around us. This is what Israel did. They measured their success not based upon divine standards, but upon their own standards. And listen, the gospel comes into our ears. And it whispers these words of humiliation to us. That you are not all that you think you are. You are not good enough on your own. You are not put together enough. You are not rich enough. You are not wise enough. You are not studied on YouTube or studied in Harvard or studied in wherever enough. You aren't enough. And those words of the gospel come into our ears and they are humiliating words because they reflect clearly to us the nature of us. Friends, no one comes to Jesus on their own two feet. When we actually are measured up against true righteousness in Jesus, which the gospel confronts us with, we all fall down. And if you cannot be humiliated by God, you don't have the gospel. <laughs> So Paul looks at Israel and says, you haven't obeyed. Not because you haven't heard. Not because faith doesn't come through hearing. It comes through the word of Christ. But when confronted with Christ, Israel, you haven't obeyed. Even though Psalm says that you should have. Even though Moses said that you should have. But Moses tells you that you were going to be jealous of those who were not a nation. With a foolish nation, you make them angry. And so looking around Israel, looking at Christ, the suffering servant, you say, that's foolishness. That can't be God. And you stand tall in the face of the gospel. What was meant to humiliate them and fall down, they stood up in pride and bucked against. My friends, you and I, may we not be so hard-hearted. May you hear how good Jesus is and recognize, no matter how good you think you are, no matter what family you came from, no matter what they've done for Jesus, that, that you are not enough. Until the gospel humiliates you, it will never save you. The gospel as humiliation. The second thing that Paul wants to show us here is found in verses 19 and 20. And so um, these are disorienting truths. The, the first is that you must be humiliated to respond to the gospel. I don't know if you've ever heard that before or thought about that, but I hope that you see it. The second is that um, for, for, for every person that needs to be humiliated in their pride, there's another type of person that God is going to go after. And it's a disorienting theme. It's simply this, is that the gospel is not humiliation, but it's exaltation. There is a simultaneous work of God in the gospel where he is putting down those who are proud and lifting up those who are low. 
And I want to show you this as the, uh, the way that Paul uses these quotations from the Old Testament. Look at, look at what he says in verse 19 again. He says, uh, did not Israel understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And so we just focused our attention in this verse on Israel that they would be jealous in watching someone else uh, come to God. But I want you to see the characteristic of the people that are coming to God. God calls them not a nation with a foolish nation. Uh, To put that into context for you, those are foolish anarchists. That's what he's talking about. Israel, you're going to be put to shame by foolish anarchists. Anarchists, people who are not a nation, who live to themselves, who are all uh, my way or the highway. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. That reminds me a lot of uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that will lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Paul says, yes. Isaiah said, I will be found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. I don't know if you see it yet, but you will in a moment. What Paul is doing is he is taking the Gentiles and he's pulling them out of this land of obscurity and insignificance and he's elevating them. He tells Israel, I will make you jealous of people who are not a nation, the the Gentiles, the Gentiles. The Gentiles is not a nation in the Bible. It is just simply everyone else in the world. My family tends to be Swedish, Norwegian, Gentile. (laughs) I don't know what you are, Italian, some of you are Polish, some of you are, I don't know, Lithuanian, and, and, and uh, Gentiles, Gentiles. Most of us, Gentiles. Let me ask you, in the Old Testament, what good were the Gentiles? The answer is uh, not good, <laughs> okay. Background players destined for destruction, In the Old Testament, God's covenant love is poured out to the Israelites, and it puffed them up. And now here God is saying, no, 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 my plan hasn't just been to the Jew first, it's also to the whole world. And here the Gentiles are being elevated out of their nondescript status. Paul tells us that this is God's pleasure to call and to win the Gentiles to himself. And this is everybody, uh, every rags to riches story. This is every Disney princess story. This is every um, someone who was a nobody made a nap, and now we're all like, who's Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like, this is a rags to riches type of phenomenon. Uh, do you remember uh, Kate Middleton? She's kind of like become passe. She's got a new sister that's all the rage. Um, but you remember Kate Middleton, right? She was this girl from Nowheresville who was a no one, and all of a sudden became someone, became a part of an exalted family with an exalted status, not because of anything she'd done, but because of who loved her. And Paul is showing us that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you come from. All that matters is that you know the one who loves you. He, he tells us, and I'm trying to preach this this morning so that you hear it, that, that 
you may not have been born into a spiritually privileged family. You may not have been born into prominence. You, you might be a nobody from nowheresville. You may not need the gospel of humiliation because you're already humiliated with yourself. You know who you are. You know where you come from. You know the type of people you are. You know what you deserve. And Paul tells us, the gospel tells us, that from your desperate place, when you weren't looking for God, God found you. He took you from your lowest state. He whispered his love of Christ into your ears and it sank into your heart and you responded by faith into this glorious reality, this glorious word of Christ. You said yes in your heart to Jesus as Lord, not because of anything you've done, but because Jesus loved you. And he lifted you up and gave you a name and gave you a place and gave you a reign with him. Who were you? Who cares? I know him. And at the same time that the gospel is bringing down the proud, it is always lifting up the weak. Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. How is that possible in a world where the privileged get everything and the poor get nothing? No, no, no. In, in the gospel, in the gospel, it is a gospel of exaltation, which is good news for you and me, Christians. It's good news. That our God sees us and loves us enough to not leave us dead in our sin, but to lift us up out of the pit and put us onto the solid ground of Jesus Christ. That we might be united with him and be called sons and daughters of the Most High King. This is what the gospel does. It lifts poor sinners from looking down at themselves to looking up at Jesus Christ. That in that, he is exalted. These two categories are true of the gospel because they are true in Jesus. Where, where the gospel as humiliation tells us that we're not as good as we think we are, the gospel of exaltation tells us that we're no longer in the same condition that we used to be. We have been united to the exalted king in eternal victory. The two categories of the gospel are seen in Jesus where Jesus went to the cross and was humiliated. He endured crucifixion as a common criminal on account of false accusations, unjustly put on trial, he was spit upon, betrayed, flogged, and condemned. They dragged him up a roadside outside the city gates to a place where everybody in the world could pass by. In three languages, they put mocking title of him above his head. Uh, Here is the king of the Jews, and with arms stretched out, naked he was killed. Humiliation. But at the same time, in the exact same moment, that which was intended to humiliate was his exaltation. Because for those who have faith in Jesus, we look upon that song called it the old rugged cross, that emblem of suffering and shame, and we cherish that cross. Why? Because on it our Lord was stretched wide and lifted high Upon that cross, he paid for the sins of humanity, including the sins that I committed against him. In his exaltation, he was truly the king of the Jews, though they did not believe it. And there on the cross, he gave up his breath, doing for me the thing that I couldn't do for myself, paying for my sin. And he was put down into the darkness, down into the grave, down off of that cross, for three days, he, the Bible says, descended 
until that day when the earth shook at the resurrection of its king and the stone which sealed in the promise of death had to let out the promise of life. And our King Jesus rose up from the grave, didn't he? And he took up his life and he walked up out of that grave to new life so that when his disciples saw him, they fell down at his feet. And he went to be among them. They saw them. He ate with them. And there was that day. Do you remember this day, this crazy day that I still don't even understand where Jesus said, I'm going to be with my father. And what did he do? He ascended in air up through the clouds with people watching him, breaking that veil that the Jewish people thought was some of this like layer between heaven and earth. So Paul would say, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel is the gospel of humiliation, but it is ultimately the gospel of exaltation, that we rise with him. There's a scene here in the end of this that gives us one final disorienting reality. The gospel is the gospel as humiliation. It's the gospel as exaltation. It's seen in the way that the gospel came and it humiliated the Israelites as they didn't understand the humiliation of Christ and it exalted the Gentiles as they understood the exaltation of Christ. But then look at this last verse, one, one more thing before we move on to the next thing in our service. It's, um, it's the gospel is invitation. The gospel is invitation. Look at this with me, verse 21. You all still with me? This is what the gospel does. I hope you never see it a different way. But of Israel, he says, and this is condemning, but we see it as hopeful for ourselves. All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You may say, Pastor, you, it seems like you're playing fast and loose with this text here. It doesn't have anything to say about the invitation of God. It doesn't have anything to say about us. As Jew it's just Jewish people rejecting God. And there's a sense in which you could um, see that. But I want you to see this. Uh, look, at, look at that word, disobedient. Disobedient. Um, I skipped in verse 16 the word obey. I said I'd come back to it. I want to come back to it right now because it's very similar words that are used here. Uh, in, in Isaiah, as well as uh, what Paul says in verse 16, that, that not all have obeyed the gospel. And uh, that word, obey, it's a compound word. It means, it means it's hyper, uh, which means to, to, to hyper hear, to hear a lot of. Actually, it's literally hearing that goes into your ear and then moves out of your fingers, moves out of your feet. It's hearing that causes you to be motivated. It's, it's a type of hearing that I honestly always want my kids to have, right? Hyper hearing, hearing so that they do something. Paul says that Israel heard, but they didn't do anything with it. They didn't respond is the right word, respond to it. So here we have a picture of God the Father. Look at what he says about these people who are not responding to him. He says, all day long, I have, what's, what's the words there? 
held out my hands like this. Like this. I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul wants us to know that this is the picture we should have in our minds of our God. That he is a God who will never invade your life to make you do his bidding. He invites you to come into his life and experience his blessing. Our God will never coerce you into obedience. He simply invites you into blessing. There he stands looking at the Jewish people saying, all day long, I would like nothing more than for you to stop being stubborn. And so all day long, I'll stand here if it takes all day. (laughs) You ever said that before as a parent? If it takes all day, yeah. This is what God says all day long. I've held out my hands. I I don't know. This has been like 30 seconds. My hands are tired. But he's invited us. And this is what the gospel looks like. For some of us, this is disorienting because we've just gone through Romans chapter 9 which talks about the sovereign will of God to elect those to salvation as he wills. But may we not make the mistake that that means God is going to uh, control your life in a micro No, he invites you to follow him. The love of God never compels us beyond our own ability to respond. Because Romans chapter 10, it ends with this loving picture of God in our response ability, our ability to respond to his invitation. What's the invitation? The invitation is to come to him in humility, saying, I see how good Jesus is. I've heard the word of Christ, the message of Christ. I know that he is everything and I'm nothing. And I know that in Christ are all spiritual blessings and I come to you knowing that I've been humiliated so that you can exalt me. God, I respond to your invitation. I accept your invitation. This is the arms of our Father. They are outstretched for us. Jesus told a story where a father had two sons. Do you remember this story? One son, the younger son, went away to a faraway place and squandered all of his father's wealth, left his father for dead, and came to his senses and said, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and maybe he'll hire me. And when he came back from a far place, he found the father already doing what? Standing all day long, arms wide open, arms that took this son who was dead and brought him back to life. Arms that took this son who had rejected the family and belonged to no family all of a sudden wrapped this son and gave him back his sonship twofold. He bestowed upon him the blessings. He exalted him as the son in his house. He put a ring on his finger and a robe on his back and feet to have sandals. And he brought him in. And more than that, he made a feast for this son to say, what has been dead has come back to life. He's come home. He's accepted my invitation. Jesus said out in the backyard, though, there was another brother who was angry that the father would treat the younger brother this way, this terrible younger brother who didn't deserve to have any share in the family anymore. And he went out into the backyard and he looked at the son and what did the father do in Jesus' story? He said, son, come into the party. 
don't be rebellious any longer. It is good for us to celebrate that this son of mine who was dead is now alive. Won't you come? Won't you come? And if you know the story, you know that that's exactly where Jesus leaves the story. It's a cliffhanger. And I hate that cliffhanger because I want to know, like, does he come? Does he go to the Father? But Jesus leaves that cliffhanger for us so that we would be invited into the story ourselves. So that we would ask the question of us, which son am I? Have I been humiliated by my life already and come to accept the exaltation of the Father and respond in faith to his invitation? Or am I stiff-arming God? Because I know the way this is supposed to work out. And I know the way my life is supposed to go. And I know the way that my medical diagnoses and my job, my job situation and my family situation and all of the tension, I know how it's going to work out and God has to do that for me. Or have you come knowing that the only one who is good is God? Have you come and responded to his invitation? The gospel is humiliation. It's exaltation invitation that we might become children of God.